Thank you for joining us at Beggar's Bread this week. Before I get started with my normal introduction, I just wanted to let everyone know that this week we'll be talking about a more sober topic about sexual assault and abuse, and that if this is a sensitive topic for you specifically, or if you have younger ears listening in, uh, we just invite you uh, perhaps to have a friend listen to it first and let the, they can let you know what they think, or perhaps to sit it out and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Beggar's Bread podcast where we invite Christians and truth seekers to engage with thoughtful sources in an age of disinformation. Our name is inspired from the quote by D.T. Niles, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Each week, we recommend a source for you, either a sermon, podcast, or video. This week, we're actually interviewing someone, and you don't have to go anywhere for the source. It's right here. Um, my sister, Kristen, I've asked to interview her, um, specifically talking about topics of sexual assault and abuse. Um, for her background, she's got a bachelor's degree from in social work from Taylor University. She also has a master's degree in social work from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, before she got that master's degree, she had worked as a child advocate for four years at Prevail, a nonprofit um, advocating for victims of crime and abuse. And she currently holds a position as a ministry director at Missio Day in Salt Lake City, a, a church in Salt Lake. And she's married and has an eight-month-old. So welcome to the podcast, Kristen. Thanks. And just to get us started, uh, really, I, I think I've been very influenced and impacted by just how you've shared in the past. And because obviously most people listening to this podcast have no idea who you are from anybody else um, and what you did for your work. Do you mind telling us a little bit about what your job entailed at Prevail? Sure. So, um, advocates often wear a lot of different roles, or, yeah, like a different hat, and so I'll try to describe them. So, there's two main parts that I kind of see. One is crisis intervention. So, as a victim advocate, we would I would go to provide support to people who are in crisis so through like sexual assault medical exams i'd go to the hospital or the place where kids get interviewed for if um, there's a allegation of abuse i would go there and talk to the families um police departments to answer questions filing protective orders those kind of immediate needs and then we also did like kind of what i would call long-term services so we would walk through the core process with people i would facilitate support groups that focus on like, I did kids, but we had adult groups, but, like, educating kids on what is abuse and how to cope with it and how to keep themselves safe or what kind of, how to manage their feelings and their thoughts and hopefully with kids especially, like, preventing them to continue kind of a cycle of intergenerational violence that often happens. And I did individual services as well, so hope that makes it a little bit more clear. Absolutely. And I, well, I specifically remember too, when you were working, sometimes when you were on call for, mm -hmm. to be ready to go to the hospital. And, um, I think before that, my previous conception of people on call was like doctors and like firefighters. I had no idea. Oh, there's a whole group of people that are on call for other things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's so, that's fair. I think oh, like maybe include social workers or like that type of because a lot of social workers do actually have to be on call too so yeah yeah and I know 
this definition, you know, could be, we could talk a long time about it, but just to give kind of everyone a, a an orientation toward where we're talking about even, do you mind just telling us a little bit about what sexual assault is and, and domestic abuse is? Yeah, so, um, I, so I had to help kids understand what sexual assault was, lots of just my basic definition for kids would be any looking, touching, or showing of private parts. And so then for adults, I would just add on to that, like, unwanted or coerced or manipulated or, like, basically, like, not... I believe in, like, yes means yes. So, like, not, um, like, desired. Not not just, like, I didn't want it, but also, like, I wasn't fully into, into that experience with you. So... Um, like as an adult, consent can't be inferred. It just needs to be expressed. Um, so it's like enthusiastic consent is like what I would call is ideal. So it's not like, um, so I guess we could like, yeah, we could kind of get into the weeds a little bit about it. I will say to clarify, like rape is a type of sexual assault, but it's not like, sexual assault is way more broad than that. And then also, like, what I would consider sexual assault is not always, like, legally prosecutable or, like, against the law. But it still may be very much, like, sexually violating to someone or traumatic. I see. No, that's that's helpful. Because I think, and maybe this is really detailed, but do you mind giving, like, an example of something that's, not rape. This may sound really silly to no. ask, but because um, I think that is what my brain automatically goes to. Yeah, I think um, an example would be um, like somebody fondling a woman's breast or even touching breasts over the clothes that is unwanted or unsus- like just honestly, it. I've worked with people who had it happen to them literally out of the blue, like they're in a public place. And so that I would consider that sexual assault. And I, my experience with women who experienced that would, would say that it was very harmful. And I would say traumatic, like had traumatic responses to that experience. Does that make sense? So like, that's why I would qualify that as a sexual assault. Um, And that is actually could be uh, prosecutable. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, potentially, depending on all the others. Anyways, that's not maybe the focus. I did want to also clarify that sexual assault, to me, as a Christian, um, whether you're Christian or not, they're listening, no problem. But I do think it's important to clarify for Christians that sexual assault is not the only part of our sexual ethic, um, but it is a part of our sexual ethic. So, um, again, I don't know that we need to get in the weeds of that, but... Yeah. That, no, that's that's a great... Uh, point to make Um, there's a lot of thoughts to be had about sexual ethic but um and then I might have missed it do you mind talking a little bit about domestic abuse yeah no yeah so um domestic abuse I would also you could use the word domestic violence interpersonal violence there's so many phrases that have been used and so I would say that domestic abuse really includes any type of abuse so that could be financial emotional uh emotional, uh, verbal, um, reproductive. There's all different kinds of abuse that occurs within like a home or a home type setting or even like dating violence. I would still consider 
a part of domestic abuse or in that lump. But, um, so it could be like what we often think of as like spouse, like to spouse commonly, like husband to wife. I might refer to that often, but that could also be like partner to partner, not living together. It could also be like elder abuse, like a child, adult child to their parent or vice versa, parent, adult parent to an adult child. Anyways, it includes a lot of different options, but, um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very broad, (laughs) but it is helpful too to, to broaden it, I think. Cause when I, when I think of abuse, normally my definition, which I obviously think this is an important part of a definition, but what your definition helps me think about is I think of man hits woman. Yeah. Um, often I think like a movie scene almost. Mm -hmm. And then normally that's like a backstory of somebody as a child. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of, we don't necessarily, or at least I don't necessarily normally hear people using the word abuse Mm -hmm. in other situations. So that's helpful. Um, so then with those definitions to kind of give us an orientation with what we're talking about, because mm-hmm. it's, there's a lot of stuff to think about. Yeah. Um, my next question is, uh, how common is um, sexual assault or domestic abuse? At least we know, obviously, you can't know everything about the whole United States or even if other people are listening across the world. <laughs> um, I don't know. If there's an international listener, let us know. We'll be, uh, we'll be happy to get you as a co-listener. But... Um, the question, as far as where you were working in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. um, how common was it? Or can you describe, like, what it was like um, working there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I worked actually in a county surrounding Indianapolis, and it was the wealthiest county in Indiana. And so it was primarily, I would say, felt primarily suburban in a lot of a lot of the a lot of the land, I guess, was suburban. And then there was also a significant portion that was rural. Um, so less urban, most mostly wealthy, um, somewhat diverse because the suburbs were in the process of becoming more diverse, even as I worked in that county, um, in terms of racially. Um, and then, but I would say largely middle and upper class, obviously also some, some, uh, not, and that are like lower socioeconomic class. Um, and I would say, so domestic violence, sexual assault happens everywhere in every community and no matter, um, no matter the like wealth no matter how it looks on the outside. We had people who live in beautiful homes, are very highly educated, um, who would experience extreme forms of violence in their home. And so, um, yeah, and then I do I do think that just to, it is a, the, the nuance there is that it does happen also in lower uh, socioeconomic statuses or among all different races and um what I would say about about that though is that it the more um risk factors you have the harder it is to get out of it so or to like heal and um move kind of create a different path 
outside of living in an abusive environment. Um, but it just, just does this occur in all communities? I would say yes. Sorry okay. if that was <laughs> rambling. No, that's, I really appreciate that. And I think that's one of the things I noticed when you were first sharing what you were doing at work when you were working at Prevail was hearing that it's everywhere. Uh, again, the the previous conception I had was, oh, this happens when people are in like desperate situations, they turn on each other in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. Um, like, fi- I don't know, financially desperate is like, mm-hmm. or even, I mean, if you, now I'm thinking just on the spot right now, like it's a wonderful life. You know, George Bailey seems like this great guy. Yeah. And he, you know, and in a lot of ways, he's a great guy. But there is that moment where he kind of just destroys his house for a second. And, you know, he immediately apologizes, which is great. But mm-hmm. it only happens in that context, in that movie. And mm-hmm. obviously, that's just one movie. And it's just mm-hmm. one fictional character. But um, the fact, I appreciate that knowledge. I, just that conception of like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I did stereotype or I don't know if stereotypes are a word but more just like I just assumed yeah like oh someone's wealthy then they're fine they must have a great relationship yeah which is kind of silly after growing older thinking oh wait no my my sisters said that this happens everywhere this happens in every profession yeah um which is of course very sad but this is a little anecdote to follow up on that but somebody once was kind of arguing against the idea that, that, like, women are oppressed in our society. And I'm not trying to make a statement necessarily about that, but they're like, well, just go to church and look around. Like, does anybody look oppressed to you? And as someone who has worked with people who've experienced abuse and violence, especially in their home, like, you're not going to be able to tell what um, is really happening in someone's home just by, like, looking around when you go into your church. So I think, um, not to like overkill your question, but just to say like, I expect to see domestic violence and sexual assault or to like, I expect that it is happening around me. Um, not that I assume that a specific type of person is doing it, just that like, I know it's happening in the groups of people that I have community with. Gotcha. And so that's actually, that leads, I'm just thinking when you say you won't be able to tell, um, which, you know, obviously I trust what you're saying. I'm, I'm not going to go around and be like, is that person abused? Is that person abused? I don't think that would lead to very good yeah, conversations. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Might be a little awkward. Yeah. Um, excuse me, I'm an introvert. Please leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but with that, are there any red flags uh and like if you're if you're closer with a friend and they're dating somebody mm-hmm. they'd be looking out for and part of me thinks like oh this should be an easy question but part of me is also like i have no idea i don't i don't know are, are there things that are helpful to be aware of yeah so i think it's really important to educate yourself on red flags and um i probably should have like brought a list but <laughs> i would say they can be really subtle so if you i think it's really great to like educate yourself, continue educating yourself. Also know that like you might not be, you still might not be able to tell in the end of the day. But, um, what I would look for most is like my friend becoming isolated. So like a relationship that is pulling your friend away from other people. Also like 
a level of control that seems like very different than other relationships you've generally experienced or like around you assuming you've had like some healthy relationships model to you um so like not letting that person like I have to ask all like to um and they said no and I I can't go now like I'm scared like they seem scared or they seem like less open about their relationship in a way that um is different that person is always with them for example or they can't like go I mean especially when you get into if there's been like someone's married and it's been 10 years of of this isolation like they can't go to the doctor without their partner being in the room with them all the time. Like, there's no um, going somewhere without their partner. Um, not just even their partner's knowledge, but... Their actual physical presence. <laughs> yeah, or being... Yeah, so I guess, like, control and isolation um, are the ones that really stick out to me. Obviously, if someone is calling someone, like, name like derogatory names in front of you or um I would be concerned about that or or making someone just feel like they're crazy like if your friend is consistently being like um this is what happened and then they go back and change what happened or like oh well they explained it it's okay that they did something really egregious again like physically harming or calling like a really derogatory name or does that make sense is that helpful or maybe not yeah i think well i think it's helpful just for kind of a having an awareness um and i think again what you were saying earlier too was you might not be able to tell so i guess it kind of leads well into another question i'm thinking of is when somebody does tell you so it's not so much like oh i'm guessing that my friend fred and sally have a a bad relationship uh and there's something wrong going on there instead of like a kind of speculation Mm -hmm. if someone confides in you and says Mm -hmm. i'm you know in a a bad situation Mm -hmm. um what would be what what would be a helpful way to respond Mm -hmm. um and and i know there might be a whole bunch of different situations so it might not be a cookie cutter oh this is the perfect situation this is what you should do every time um Mm -hmm. but or maybe to break it down Mm -hmm. because we have been talking about sexual assault and domestic abuse Mm -hmm. let's just start with one so if someone says i have been the victim of sexual assault or survivor of sexual assault what Mm -hmm. would be probably a, a helpful response yeah um uh Sorry. (laughs) For the sexual assault example, are you the first person they've ever told, maybe? Or is this just in general? I guess those Uh, are... Sure, let's say first person. Yeah, because I think they're a little bit different. So, if you're the first person someone told... First of all, if they're a child, I think think all state laws require that you report it. So, I would look into, into that. Even if you're not a mandated reporter, I would still look into the laws. Because, for example, in Indiana, where I worked, you... You were a mandated reporter, even if you're not, like, a... Anyway. Yeah, what's a mandated reporter? Like, law enforcement officer. Like, you are required by law to report, and you can have consequences for not. So, in Indiana, they actually say, like, all adults who, like, are aware that something is happening. Like, you could technically... I never saw it happen, but you could technically get into trouble. 
legally for not reporting. So that's a mandate, like legally mandated. Right. So anyways, but I would still, if it's a child, you should report it. Um, that's a whole nother thing, but let's just pretend they're an adult. So, um, the first thing I would do, honestly, I would, um, try not to look shocked. Like you don't want to like make them feel othered or different or less than because they already probably are feeling a lot of shame. And so it's really brave for someone to tell you about a sexual assault. And so I would generally, honestly, just like thank them for confiding in you. It says a lot if they're willing to be that vulnerable and open with you. And as an adult, they have a lot of different options in that situation. So I think if they, I think your first best bet is just to listen, right? Like just do you want to tell me more about that? Kind of have a posture of like curiosity and open heartedness towards them. And then if they, if they're just like really overwhelmed or I think you can kind of talk about like, okay, maybe we need options. Do you want options? Do you want to just tell me like, do you, what, what can I do or how can I help you if you want to take steps towards doing whatever thing about that that is? So that could be like, I was just sexually assaulted. I want to, I, one thing, if someone is recently, like in the past three days, sexually assaulted, you should encourage them to go to the hospital just to get physically, um, checked out to make sure that nothing, um, needs to be taken care of in their body. It's very likely that there won't be anything, but, um, I think it can give someone peace of mind. I would recommend it, um, whether or not they want to report it to law enforcement, um, so that's an option. There's also other options like do, do they want to report to law enforcement? You could go with them to help them, like just to be there with them to make that report. Do they want to get connected to an advocacy agency? Like they're just kind of being there and being like, huh, I wonder if there's anything that you need me to help you do. But I would say more yeah. often than not, they're probably going to just want to talk to you about it. And so then your job is to just really like listen and be supportive. And, and I would say also to... I mean, believing people really goes a long way. It's, you're not the police, like, you don't need to determine if everything about their story was true or not true, that if you're just a friend or family member, I would discourage you from believing that's your job in this situation. Yeah. So, just to clarify, and this may sound like I'm being overly clear, but I don't go to the police for them. And make that decision for them? Yeah. So I would say definitely not. So um, in all forms of abuse are about taking power over someone else. So like in a sexual assault, like we were talking about, somebody has taken over your own autonomy or control over your own body. And so when you try to make decisions or tell someone what to do about that, you're actually kind of becoming that same like power over them and that can be really it I don't think it's really helpful but it's also like can be very harmful because someone just took away their ability to say no and now you're kind of doing the same thing does that make sense absolutely and that that actually I mean I was really doing it to be really extra over clear (laughs) 
Because I remember in college, there was a speaker that came and talked about this very topic. I had, there was a great, there was actually an older upperclassman that specifically texted a bunch of younger guys and said, you should come to this event talking about sexual assault. And at first I was like, sure, whatever. Like I went to lectures all the time. I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, free lecture, (laughs) whatever. Um, But I remember that speaker saying, he was like, a lot of times when, and he's talking about in college specifically, and obviously this we weren't necessarily talking about college specifically, but this could apply outside of college. Yeah. But, you know, a, a young woman goes to her guy friends and says, I've just been sexually assaulted. And their reaction is, who's the guy? I'm yeah. going to beat him up. And I'm going to give me my baseball bat and I'm going to go beat him up. And the speaker, like, vehemently denounced that idea, basically saying, so a woman, exactly like you described mm-hmm. it, like her autonomy was taken away by a man with power violently doing something mm-hmm. and now you want to go and violently do something and and i can understand the desire for justice the desire for mm-hmm. vengeance the desire to say not my friend not my mm-hmm. family member um but i just wanted to kind of reiterate no. that yeah um and i think that's true about all forms of violence so when we talk about domestic violence domestic abuse sexual assault like all of those things i as an advocate, became extremely passionate about people letting, like, victim survivors of these things make their own choices. And so, like, that pushiness of, like, you need to report this or you need to, whatever, like, you need to do this, like, I, I just saw how harmful it really was to people like someone who experiences violence needs to be empowered, not like coerced into making another choice. Yes. Well, and that ties in well with talking about our, really the the same question, but in the other situation, if what if someone comes to you and says that they are um, suffering from abuse, um, from domestic abuse, you know, whatever type, physical or emotional or verbal or reproductive or, all these different types of abuse if someone comes to you and says i'm being abused what is a appropriate response yeah i think again like listening and i think in this situation um potentially even more than in uh like a case of a one incident sexual assault it's gonna be require a lot of patience probably for me if they're still currently in that environment and so Really listening, really being patient, really, again, trying to not think that you know what is best for them to do, but instead um, that you you want to help support them in making the decisions that they think are best because they really do know their situation the best. They know it, what that person does that might be the least safe thing they do and they um so yeah tell me more because my reaction I, I mean I know we've talked about this before so my reaction now isn't this but in the past it was get out of that situation it was right. no I need to tell them what to do so yeah tell me when you say they know what it could be more dangerous what do you mean by that what's, so, what's dangerous about leaving yeah so that actually leaving is the most dangerous thing. So we, I mean, in domestic violence, we're really the most concerned about homicide, suicide situations. And those are real situations. They happened in the county that I worked in. Like they happen 
they happen. Um, they're not happening every day by any stretch of the imagination, but they are real and they are scary. And so, um, women are very, that's a women. I know. Anyways, women are very scared to leave these situations and for very good reason. When a woman chooses to leave her partner, that is, that is the time she is most at risk for being actually murdered by her partner. And that sounds very graphic, but that is statistically like we know that we know it over and over and over again so um so telling someone you just need to leave means that you just told someone to do something that could be extremely dangerous and should be very well planned for and prepared for and to make sure that they have a place to stay that is safe with people that are not going to tell that person where they live potentially for months and months of time um they may need to secure like enough finances for themselves they there just may be a lot of steps that go into that and maybe they ultimately don't want to leave and if it is you can express when something they tell you something that happened to them that's like that feels really unsafe and i am really scared and i'm really sad that that happened to you to validate that that is a dangerous thing to that happened to them. So I don't. You don't need to pretend like you just share that your husband is strangling you. Um, I now I need to pretend that that's safe. No, you can you can be honest. You can say like, "Wow, that feels really scary to me." Like, but then the then the question is like, could we connect you with someone who can make a safety plan with you. And that person can explore all the different ways that they could become more safe in their situation. There's always a way to reduce harm, whatever that person wants to do in their situation. So if they want to leave, great. Like, I want you to support them leaving. I want you to invite them into your home. I want you to not tell anyone where they are. Like, I want you to follow their safety plan with them. But if they want to stay, I want you to support them staying. I want you to be a person they can call right after something bad happened. I want you um, to be someone they can text about, like, hey, I want, you know, I need this from you, or can you drop this off, or can, can we talk? Like, be what they need you to be and trust their ability to make that choice. Yeah. That, so I, I think what my mind immediately goes to, um, well, besides, I mean, there's a lot of things to think about. Well, let me, let me start with this question. Um, when someone, when you say you can connect them with someone to help with safety plan, who do you connect them with? Yeah. Almost all communities besides like there's some really really rural places in the u.s but most communities suburban urban will have an advocacy agency that is fair excuse me fairly accessible so um so just like google advocacy yeah victim advocacy shelter all um domestic violence and then your like city name um or county name just basic internet searches yeah and look for an advocacy center yeah and you can offer to like call with them you can call yourself if if someone's coming to you with these things and you don't know what to do with them call call yourself and talk to someone it might help you make a better referral like i talked to this lady and she was super helpful um so yeah does sorry did that answer your question yeah absolutely because that because i think what that 
makes sense for me is, okay, obviously I'm your brother, so I get to hear your wisdom and your experiences <laughs> often, or I can ask and you'll, you'll share as you feel comfortable. But there's tons of people who have no such connection. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, if you don't have a, a sister, Kristen, in your life, yeah. um, go ahead and contact somebody that, that mm. wants to care, wants to resource mm. you. Um, but my other question after you were explaining if someone is going to leave, trying to help them plan, trying to help give them a place to stay, and, you know, confidentiality in that to mm-hmm. keep them safe, privacy, um, or, you know, someone... If they're going to stay, trying to think of ways that can be more safe or being a resource to them, um, my mind automatically goes to um, like the book Boundaries by uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Henry Cloud. Henry Cloud, yeah. yeah. And like thinking, well, this is hard. What do you do when you feel like someone is doing something that's perpetuating pain? And am I making any sense? Yeah. Like, how do you how do you do that for yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So asking someone to to do any of those things, to invite someone who's just experienced a lot of trauma into their home or to maintain a relationship with someone who you feel like is, like, staying in a situation that makes them very unsafe and um, you're the person that hears about that from them. It's, It's really painful, it's really stressful, and it's really difficult. So I'm not, I don't want, I mean... That's why advocates only stayed in the job for like a year because it's just a really hard thing to try to provide, provide that, um, that support without getting just kind of, yeah, overwhelmed almost. Yeah. And not knowing, I think, um, typically speaking, people who, this is not meant to be a, it's your fault that you are in an abusive relationship. However, like. It, I would say that generally people who are maybe less educated or haven't been encouraged to maintain healthy boundaries or even understand, like, this is my responsibility and this is your responsibility. I think we all have a level of confusion about boundaries in our culture already. But then um, if your boundaries have always been violated your whole life or no one's respected them or you have childhood trauma, which a lot of people... any So generally speaking you might be supporting this person and they want you to do all this stuff for them and you can't always do those things and you're going to have to say no. So I do think healthy boundaries are still allowable in that situation. Like you don't, um, you don't always have to give, give your resources, um, to them. I think, I think it's a really difficult, um, position to be in. I think that, you need to, I think this is what I would say, you need to be making your own choices for you and while, even in trying to support them. So if someone's going to like ask me for money to leave, I need to make sure that I'm willingly doing that myself and accepting the potential consequence that they might leave and then they might return to the person that harmed them. Um, and me giving money is not to control that behavior it's because I want to be a person that can support them right now so to me the boundary is whatever like it's or it's like I'm not giving money because I can't do that without becoming too emotionally like stressed out or attached or frustrated and a better role for me is just to listen to you or 
I will come pick you up or like how, so you could, you have a lot of agency in how you're willing to do that. And if they, this, this happens, they might be like, well, I need this from you and you're not doing that. And you can say, I'm really sorry that you need something from me that I can't give you right now. Um, so you don't, does that make sense? So like the, but my goal would be you choose to support like so they can be really mad and you can say I understand that makes you upset I'm still here I just can't be here in that way and they may then choose to say okay I don't want that relationship with you anymore but if you can try to maintain your end of the relationship while maintaining your boundaries is that helpful or is that confusing no that that's really helpful I think kind of what I heard was because I think sometimes I, you know, I purposely brought up the book Boundaries because mm-hmm. I think sometimes we can use the book Boundaries, which is a great book, mm-hmm. uh, to just kind of dismiss our responsibility mm-hmm. or our power to help someone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think it has some really great points of like, oh, you need to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think what I just heard, if I just can rephrase it back yeah. just to make sure I'm understanding is uh, you may not be able to help in every way, but, you know, if you are able to help in a way still remain available as long as that person is willing to have you as a friend, have you as a, as a support, mm-hmm. um, which leads into another question that uh, we've been mulling over. And, um, and it's, it's basically if you are yourself, the person that is uh, mm-hmm. being abused or, or has been assaulted um, maybe maybe let's start with um, domestic abuse because that's one we've been talking about for just the last little bit. Um, is there something you'd like to tell those people right now to to either encourage them or give them wisdom? Um, what, what advice would you have for people who they may not have anybody in their life right now that knows or cares mm-hmm. for their situation? Mm-hmm. I think the things I would want to say to them is you're not crazy. Um you can trust your own understanding of reality. You're not alone. Even though you probably feel alone, there are other people experiencing this and there are people who do want to help you. Um, You don't deserve this. And while the options feel far out of reach, I would say continue to seek them and try to to continue to seek support from someone who doesn't have an agenda for you, but will listen and empower you to figure out what your next step is. So whatever steps you want to take in whatever direction you want to go, they're all okay and they're all understandable. Um, I also want to say that it's okay if you love the person who harmed you and that you don't know what to do about that or that sometimes you're really mad at them. Um at the same time so you're and then like you're worth it you're worth you're worth the work from other people from yourself the safety that you need you're worth that you're worth the resources of the community you're worth the money of your friends and family and yourself like you're you're worth fighting for for your safety Thank you. Yeah, I, th- I think um, 
yeah, as you were reading that and just trying to put myself in the shoes of thinking of being in a relationship, especially when you said, like, and you may love this person, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, <laughs> that would be, that would be tough. Yeah. Um, uh, and I don't think I'm really articulating the full gravity of it, but just how, um, as a person who has not experienced mm-hmm. abuse, how even just you speaking directly to them helps me kind of understand a little bit of what that would be like. Um, the kind of last couple questions, um, really one, because this is a podcast that we expressly say is for Christians and for truth seekers. Um, what can Christians do if these destructive relationships or, um, like, let's say, let's, let's do the example. If one church member sexually assaults another church member, um, whether they knew each other or didn't know each other in the church, um, but they're both in the same church. Mm-hmm. As a church, uh, or as a pastor, mm-hmm. what is an appropriate way to navigate that situation? Mm-hmm. There's a few, um, a lot of these things are very nuanced and there's not right or wrong. So there's a few things I would say are definitely wrong in that situation. So you should not have it be your first go-to to set up a meeting between the two parties. That is very dangerous. It's not safe for the person who experiences sexual assault, and it's not fair to them. You're putting them in a very risky situation. I have never met someone who survived sexual assault that would appreciate being forced into a conversation, and yet, unfortunately, that is a common thing that happens in the church. So do not force that conversation. If if both parties, after going through a lot of healing processes, agree to have that conversation great. Um, and there's an explicit purpose to it. Great. But that is not something that should be your go-to thing at all. And I do want to just pause on that for a second, because I think growing up in a church that takes the Bible very seriously, which I still do take the Bible Mm -hmm. very seriously. Immediately when I think of conflict, I think of, oh, Matthew 18. Mm -hmm. If you have somebody, you know, something, if you have something against somebody, you go to them directly. Mm -hmm. So, I do think it's a, it's helpful to pause on that just for a second mm-hmm. to say, oh, is is Kristen saying something that's against the Bible? And it's like, mm, no, it doesn't seem like what you're saying is against Matthew 18. Like, we should chuck out Matthew 18. It's more like, this isn't like, oh, you insulted me. This is like, you have harmed me mm-hmm. in a way that will continue to bring harm mm-hmm. if I meet with you. And I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, yeah, I'm a pretty you're my brother so you know I'm a pretty like not fearful of confrontation like I'm a pretty (laughs) honest and direct human so um this is a different I think this is a very different situation and I think it required like if you're um in the place where you have said I'm going to to touch your body in a way that you do not want or show you my body in a way that you do not want Um, you have a lot of work to do on yourself before you become a safe person to work through conflict with. So that's, um, that's That's helpful. Yeah. That's, that's just the reality, I think. Yeah. Cause I think that reframes it instead of just, oh, two people have a disagreement and they're going to resolve it. Yeah. It it reframes it in a way that is helpful. Yeah. But I can see we're not a yeah anyway yeah so that was one thing that's, the, um, that's one of my main things because that happens a lot unfortunately with churches and then I would say um just in general really providing um support to like 
how can we keep you safe in our church community? So that could mean like on Sunday mornings during a church service or whenever you hold your church services, like that person doesn't want to see that person or be in the same room as them. And how do you make that work? And how do you, I would recommend prioritizing the person who experienced the violence, their safety. So the survivor's safety. Um, and that means that you might have to ask the person who did the harm to not come to a service that they might want to come to and or you know you can't approach this person and and you need to make sure that you are holding that person accountable like the the survivor should not have to tell that person hey I said I didn't want to talk to you like you should have you should be stepping in before that happens or you should be like you should be aware of that situation without anyway so holding that accountable is very important. Um, and, and then like ultimately I would, as a church, like we believe in healing and I, especially with sexual assault, believe that there is healing. I have seen so many people heal from, from terrible things that have happened to them. And so being, being the place where people like you, I would encourage you to, how can we support this person's healing? Like, and that also could mean the offender, which is, um, kind of an unpopular belief in a way too, but like, we believe that God is moving among us to create like reconciliation and healing. And, and so that, that looks like, like supporting counseling or therapy or like, like sex offender treatment or whatever that like how do we move both of these people towards um towards like what God intended for them to be um and and so for the survivor side I would say that's listening to them supporting them helping them figure it out and then for the offender side it's encouraging them for accountability but also again like healing like they have a lot of work to do on themselves if they're willing to violate someone in that way yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And and I I can just kind of, even just from this conversation and, and past conversations that we've had, um, just appreciate the amount of nuance that you've encouraged and said, actually, these situations are really difficult. And um, actually, it's not always very clear, but mm-hmm. um, it's helpful. Those The things that I do hear clearly from you mm-hmm. are, okay, how can we support the person who survived this? Um, and how can we respect their boundaries? Mm-hmm. And then uh, it's not that, and this is maybe just me kind of rambling, kind of rephrasing, kind of taking it in. Um, but it's not that we don't have any hope for the offender. It's just that they do not have the level of priority of support as far as like boundaries. Correct, as, yeah as as the person who has survived um i don't know i don't know victim or survivor i i I know different people prefer different language so i guess i've just been using survivor but um that person who's gone through that difficult experience um whereas we still have hope for that person who has offended but it's not our priority that they get to go to whatever service they want to correct Um, or even participate i sorry now i just i feel like i do need to make this really clear like that person you you may need to evaluate like what ministries they're allowed to participate in your church outside of like the the victim like depending on 
what they did or what their issues are. Like, it may not be appropriate for them to serve in, like, with vulnerable populations. And you need to, like, it also may not automatically mean that. Like, but it is something you need to be really, really cautious about. And and are you holding that person up as a leader? Um, Should they be removed from a leadership position or... Um, so I do think as a church, you, you have a level of risk. Um, and this is also like, legally you do have that. So, uh, (laughs) that's something you should look into as a church, but, but evaluating like what, how you're presenting that person to your community in terms of level of safety does seem um, important. And then I would also, again, like to clarify, like churches are mandated reporting agencies. So if this was a child situation, you are legally bound to report this person. You do not have a choice. So a lot of the stuff we said applies strictly to adult sexual assault because that person, um, would not be like charged with, or like is some in this situation where either they were charged and are now no, like, not in prison or didn't go to prison or anyways, but yeah, does that make sense? So yes. there's different, you need to report it if it's a child, a minor, a minor sexual assault. I see. And which really brings me to kind of the, the last question and last thing I want to talk to you. I know a lot of listeners may be feeling a little bit heavy right now, like a little bit of, Oh, this is, this is pretty tough. Uh, I thought we were talking about just economics and politics, uh, <laughs> but Hey, we say we're bringing thoughtful, thoughtful resources to you. So it kind of leaves the door open for Nick and I to, to bring in thoughtful people about a whole source of things. But my, my final question is to, to bring some hope or vision for good things is mm-hmm. not again, not that we're denying the bad things, but just, yeah. Like what is a good picture specifically? I'm thinking for young parents or mm-hmm. uh, just people who are around kids, how do we, mm-hmm. how can we, what are some helpful things? Because I know you have a lot of experience helping coach and teach mm-hmm. kids about their bodies mm-hmm. and feelings mm-hmm. and all these things that most adults go, I don't want to talk about these things. Yeah. What are some helpful things that we can offer as adults to kids? Like what are helpful ways of viewing things? Or mm-hmm. I guess just to kind of narrow it down because it's really broad. If I'm a if I'm a young parent, what are some things I can teach my kid? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's two main things I would say. One is that you need to use anatomical terms for body parts. So you're gonna call it. I don't know if you need to bleep this out, but you need no. to use the word penis. You need to use the word vagina. Like you don't make up silly names. That communicates that we're uncomfortable. We don't know how to talk about our bodies. I don't want you to really talk about them. No, we want kids to talk to us about their private parts. We want to know if they have an infection and we definitely want to know if someone tried to touch them or did touch them there or showed them their private parts. So we have to use the right terms. It and I have an eight-month-old, as was mentioned, and I, when I change her diaper, I talk about her vagina, and that helps me be comfortable, and it also creates a way for us to start using this language. So start from day one, read some books, body safety books. Anyways, that's, use the anatomical terms. But the honestly, the second thing is really respecting kids' physical boundaries. So one of my friends kids I would see them just a few times a year so not super often and um, but we had a really fun relationship so um I'd see him and um 
we just connected and his family was kind of into tickling and so we do some like with other people around like like really into tickling but um I whenever he would say stop I always stopped immediately like immediately immediately and I never made a big deal out of it and he's loud and like kind of dramatic but so other people wouldn't always listen to him but I always did and then in kindergarten they did body safety at his school and he had to list people he could tell if somebody this is gonna make me cry if somebody like touched him inappropriately and he put my name down and I only see him like a handful of times a year and yet like I I really think the reason he knew that I was safe is because I always respected his physical boundaries and unfortunately like in our society, we often don't respect kids' boundaries. We don't, um, we don't listen to them when they tell us they don't like something. We shrug it off, or we teach them that it's okay for people to push their boundaries or not respect them. And so, the biggest thing you can do is to respect your kids' boundaries. And I'll I'll give Luke a link to another podcast that I think does a really good job, kind of explaining it and even taught me a few things that I just listened to a couple of months ago that I really, really liked that you can do to do that. So and do you, do you mind reminding me the name of that pot, the name of the speaker? Is that Scott McKnight? Did you say? So those are two. So the kid oh, one, one is a different one. <laughs> if you want to learn more about what churches can do and how to create a culture that does not tolerate like abusive behavior in your church, um, Scott McKnight wrote a book called I think it's called a church called Tove. Oh, that yeah. sounds wrong. We'll we'll get that. We'll link it. But I'll and he has some podcasts notes. too if you don't like reading like me. But um, so <laughs> the, those are two resources I think are really good for and even like red flags like you mentioned before that Scott McKnight's book I think would be great to learn more about like the nuances of red flags and what to look for in yeah. individuals but also communities. So. Well, and there's, before we wrap everything up, I did want to briefly return to the last comment because this was actually, I was specifically hoping Kristen would talk about this. This is the benefit of having a very wise sister that you get to hear all of her, all of her great stuff. Um, I remember when you told me a while ago, when you're tickling a kid and they say no or stop, then you stop. Mm-hmm. And I've shared that with some people that I really care about and are good friends. And sometimes they respond because they love joking around with kids. They're like, well, sometimes kids say stop, but they actually kind of mean it like, oh, keep tickling me, keep Mm -hmm. chasing me around the room. And I think, you know, tell me if this makes sense. But my thought is then that you're kind of by stopping when they say stop, you're helping enforce that. They actually need to communicate that. Oh, actually, I want you to. Yeah. Yeah. It's their job. If they actually want you to keep going, they'll tell you. They're kids. Like, it's. Yeah, then, and he, this boy that I'm talking about, the example I gave that I would always stop, he would do that. He would say stop, and then he would keep laughing, and he would say, okay, do it again. And then we, and he was like three or four, you know, and that's, but it teaches them that his voice really does matter. And you want to teach your kids that, right? Like, that means that I can't lie or I can't pretend, like, because you're going to take me at my word. Um, that's a good thing to teach your kid with or without the physical boundary absolutely involved thank you well thank you for articulating that and and letting me kind of ask these follow-up questions and uh thank you really for letting me interview you um <laughs> it's my first podcast so <laughs> might have been first, bad <laughs> hey first interview of beggar's bread 
And uh, to all of the listeners, thank you guys for joining us. We know that it is a more heavy topic, but we think it's worth talking about. We we want we want to spread thoughtful resources, and sometimes that means thinking about things that are uncomfortable and thinking about things that are sad. And um, so, I just want to say thank you to you guys who listened, and thank you for taking the time. Um, truly, it is an honor to be able to interview my sister and an honor to share her wisdom with you. Um, with that, thank you all for joining us this week and join us next week for our season finale called The Forgotten Sin. We'll see you next week.